0: So a couple months ago, I was asked to join our student ministry, our high school group, for a scavenger hunt. Uh, this was uh, this was right before Halloween. It was uh, late October, and our student ministry team put together a super fun scavenger hunt all around Lindstrom and Chisago, And uh, I was one of the adult volunteers driving the kids as they were trying to figure out the clues. And uh, one of our student ministry team leaders, uh, Emily Sternad, she had hidden uh, pumpkins, little paper pumpkins, all over uh, Lindstrom and Chisago, and the kids had to follow the clues and see which of the teams. Could could recover the most pumpkins. Now, the team that had me as their leader was definitely handicapped because uh, I found this to be a bit challenging. The clues were the clues were pretty uh, pretty interesting. Let me see how you guys might do on this scavenger hunt that we had this past October. So uh, let me let me see if you get some of these clues. Bernie's establishment opens at five. Grab some cash before you arrive. Sweet fried treats for you and for me. A central Lindstrom location is key. Anybody know what we're talking about there? The bakery. The bakery. There we go. Okay, so we, so we raced to the bakery. We found the hidden pumpkin there. Then we made our next, look uh, me- to the next clue. An umlaut is over this hard to spell park. The entrance sign is where pumpkins leave their mark. Almonds rut Park. good. All right. See, that fooled a few of you guys, didn't it? Okay? Now uh, how, about, how about this one? Coffee lovers unite. Check out the decor. A moose on the loose. <laughs> Pumpkins galore. Any <laughs> Northwoods roastery. Okay. How about this one? This one was a little tricky. Crabby fish bait. Crabby fish bait. Grumpy minnow, right? Obviously no longer with us, but, uh, but the grumpy minnow. And there were a whole bunch more clues that we had to follow all over town. Now here's the thing. There were some tough ones, and there were some clues that left us scratching our heads. In fact, it wasn't until after the scavenger hunt when we all reunited back here at the youth center and Emily revealed the answers to us that we really figured out some of these tricky clues that we were you know, trying to race around town and, and figure out where these pumpkins were. But some of them left us, literally clueless, scratching our heads. Now, I was thinking about this scavenger hunt this week because it reminded me of the passage that we've been looking at together this Christmas season. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Just some quick background, a reminder for you. Isaiah chapter 9 was written in the context of Israel on the verge of experiencing God's judgment. They had rebelled against the Lord and God had been sending them prophets, calling them to repentance, but Israel had refused and so now God was sending his judgment against the people of Israel through the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire was knocking on the door of Israel and all hope looked lost and God sent the prophet Isaiah with a message, a message of hope. He said, though You are going to be taken away into exile. Though you will face judgment, God has not abandoned his people. And he has not forgotten his promises. In fact, God was going to send a deliverer. He was going to send a savior, a new king, the Messiah, the anointed one. That's what the term Messiah means. The anointed one was coming and he would be Israel's deliverer. And so this was the context in which we find our prophecy, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, that we've been studying this Christmas season. Judgment was coming, but there was hope. God had a promised deliverer on the way. Now, with Isaiah's prophecy, God gave his people a number of clues pointing them to the identity of this promised Messiah, particularly in verses 6 through 7. Take a look at some of the clues that we see here. Who who was this promised Messiah that was to come for the people of Israel? Isaiah says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, you know, friends, when you read this passage, the clues to the Messiah's identity are right here. They're all right here in these two verses. But the reality is, just like that scavenger hunt I was a part of a couple months ago, These clues would leave God's people scratching their heads for over 700 years wondering who the Messiah would be. But when the fullness of time had come, as the Apostle Paul describes in Galatians 4, verse 4, the answer to the Messiah's identity would be fully revealed for God's people. We would come to understand the clues that that they were all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Now today, we're going to consider another one of the titles for God and his promised Messiah that were given here in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. This, This Christmas season, we've been looking at the names of the Messiah to come, asking the question, who is this child? So far, we've seen that this child is our wonderful counselor. We've seen last week that this child is our mighty God. Today, we're going to look at the title that Jesus, our Messiah, is also our everlasting father. He's our everlasting father. Now, immediately, this title raises some challenging questions for us. When we think of Jesus as our everlasting Father, you know, it leaves us questioning that title in light of who He is, especially in light of everything we know about Jesus throughout the rest of Scripture. You know, when when you think about what the Bible tells us about Jesus, and then we think about this particular title, everlasting Father, you know, just like think about some of these passages, right? In Isaiah seven fourteen. We're told that a virgin will bear a son, that this son's name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then we turn to the New Testament, passages like John chapter 1. In John's gospel, John says, in the beginning was the word. The word is Jesus Christ. He says the word was with God and the word was God. In verse 14, he then says, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, if the word was with God and the word became flesh, who became flesh? God became flesh, right? And, and so we see here that there's this unfolding of the reality of who this Messiah was going to be. And, and then we see in Colossians 1.15, which we just studied this past fall, the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. If we want to understand who God is, we look to Jesus because Jesus reveals to us who God is. He's the, he's the image of the invisible God. And then Jesus tells us himself in passages like John ten thirty. Jesus tells us that I and the Father are one. He says I and the Father are one. And then he tells Philip in John 14, 8, and 9, he tells Philip, look at Philip, if you've seen me... You've seen the Father. And then Jesus tells his disciples in John 16, 28, I came forth from the Father, and I am leaving and going to the Father. Now now we read all these passages, we read all this, these clues about the Messiah and who he is, right? And, and then we know the title that the Messiah would be our everlasting father. And, and, and so we're sort of like left scratching our head about who this person is, right? We we see this title, Everlasting Father, applied to the Messiah, and then it leads us to ask questions like: Well, is the Father the Son? Is the Son the Father? Are these one and the same person? Does God play different roles? Does he jump between father and son? I mean, like, what exactly is going on here when we apply the title everlasting father to Jesus Christ, who who we know as the son, right? How, How are we to understand these various titles? Well, to help us answer these questions, we need to understand a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith a doctrine, a teaching known as the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is the idea that there are three persons that make up the one eternal God. You can see on the diagram on the left in our Evangelical Free Church Articles of Faith, our denomination defines this doctrine of the Trinity like this. We believe in one God. So there's one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, here's the thing. The word Trinity isn't found in the Bible. It's not found anywhere in the Bible. But the doctrine of the Trinity is taught all throughout the Bible, that there's one God, who exists eternally in three co-equal distinct personages, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're all one and the same in the triune Godhead. In fact, Dr. James White, a Christian apologist, he defines the Trinity like this. He says, within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the and the Holy Spirit. So you have within the Godhead the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Father, and the Father is not the Spirit. And the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son. They are distinct, but together, eternally, they make up the triune God who reveals himself to us in Scripture. Now, when we talk about the Son... Jesus Christ, the one who was sent into the world as the Messiah, the one that we know as Jesus. When we talk about the Son, we're talking about a concept known as the incarnation. And the incarnation, the word incarnation simply means to take on flesh, to embody flesh. And so the Son, God the Son, took on human flesh to personally reveal himself to us in the man Jesus Again, our Evangelical Free Church Articles of Faith, we believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate in flesh, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. Now understand this, friends. The Son in the incarnation did not give up his divine nature. Rather, he assumed or took on a human nature to personally reveal himself to us in the man, Jesus. Okay, he didn't give up his divine nature, but he added or took on a human nature so that we could know God personally in Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing, friends. With this Trinitarian understanding of the Son and his incarnation, we, we see this defined and described in a number of ways throughout history. For example, we look through the history of the church. People like Hippolytus of Rome, one of the early church fathers. He says, he who is overall the blessed God has been born. And having been made man, he is still God forever. In more recent times, the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon Charles Spurgeon said, He who is over all the blessed God has been born, and having been... I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong quote. Remember, Christ was not a deified man, Spurgeon says, neither was he a humanized God. He was perfectly God, and at the same time, perfectly man. Okay, this is the doctrine of the incarnation. The triune the, the, the Son, who was part of the triune God, took on flesh, took on human nature, and became a man. We read uh, the, the contemporary theologian, Kevin Van Hooser, he describes us like this. He says, the good news is that in the face of Jesus Christ, we see the very face of God, the one who decided to be with us and for us in spite of our sin." We go back in history again, George Whitefield, the Whitfield, the famous evangelist. George Whitfield said, "He was God and man in one person, that God and man might be happy together again." Going back to the early church again, Irenaeus, another one of our early church fathers, he says it like this, he was a man and he was God in order that since as a man he suffered for us, so as God he might have compassion on us and forgive our sins. John Blanchard, a contemporary apologist, he says this, when Jesus came to earth, he did not cease to be God. When he returned to heaven, he did not cease to be man. Friends, are you starting to get a, a better understanding of this whole Trinitarian incarnational understanding of God's Son, Jesus Christ? It's truly incredible, and it's almost unfathomable to think about the reality that God the Son took on flesh to reveal himself to us. It's why we sing at Christmas time, oh, come let us adore him. What else could we do? What else could we do but adore the one who took on flesh, the eternal God who made everything so that he might personally reveal himself to us and become the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for our sins? Now, when we return to this title, Everlasting Father in Isaiah 9, 6, if it is the Son, Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God with us, not God the Father how exactly then is Jesus our everlasting father? Right? If it's the son who's Emmanuel, in what way is he the everlasting father if they are separate and distinct persons? Right? Well, here we need to recognize that Isaiah is speaking of Jesus' father-like qualities. He's still God the son, but as the Messiah, his actions towards his people, his love and his grace would be like that of a father with his children. That's what Isaiah's prophecy is talking about. Jesus' father-like qualities. That's what the Messiah would display. You know, I was blessed. I had a great father. My dad was an incredible man. He's been at home with the Lord now for 11 years. I still miss him every day. But my dad, you know, this week I was thinking about the idea of how significant fathers are in our lives. My dad, he used, to have a, he used to have a phrase he would share with my brother and I all the time. He would say to us, guys, we're pals, aren't we? And we'd say, yeah. And he'd ask us, well, what do pals do? And then we would answer, they stick together. Pals stick together. And that was kind of our, our family's phrase that we would share all the time. What, are pal, what do pals do? Pals stick together. And you know, this week, as I was thinking about my dad's influence on my life, I literally couldn't think about a negative memory. I mean, I was truly blessed with a great dad. And, you know, the reality is not everybody has a dad like that. A lot of people get crummy dads. A lot of people get abusive dads, dads who don't show love. I, I was at a tennis tournament with my daughter this week, and I, I was watching a dad walking down the hallway with his little boy, and this little boy kept grabbing at his dad's hand, and his dad just kept walking, ignoring him. And I was just thinking, man, how sad. Here's this little boy who just wants to hold his dad's hand. You know, a lot of people get crummy dads. Some people don't even know their dads. they walked out on them. They've abandoned them. But friends, I want to tell you something this morning. In Jesus, in Jesus, every single one of us here has the opportunity to know a perfect father. Jesus is our everlasting father. I want to share with you this morning three ways in which Jesus is a perfect father to us. As our everlasting father, Jesus, number one, he gives us life. He gives us life. Just as our earthly fathers give us physical life, and if you're not sure how that works, uh, Pastor Barry's going to be out in the coffee shop after the uh, service. He's going to do a Q&A session for people. <laughs> but just like our earthly fathers give us physical life, Jesus, our everlasting father, gives us spiritual life. He gives us the opportunity to be born again. One of my favorite Christmas carols that we sing is, "O Holy Night. It, it's a great song. The, the, first, the first line says, "O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angels' voices. Oh, night divine. Oh, night divine when Christ was born. Friends, what is this song all about? This song is a salvation song. This song is about experiencing new life in Jesus Christ. That's what this thrill of hope is. That, that the author describes. Adolph Adam, the 1847 French composer who wrote the song, he's talking about salvation. He's talking about new life in Christ. He's talking about the reality of sin and how our world, in, in, in error, pining, waiting away, wasting away its days, hopeless, all of a sudden discovered life in Jesus. And the soul felt its worth. Friends, do you know how much you're worth? You're worth so much that God took on flesh to personally reveal himself to us. That's what he means when he sings about the soul feeling its worth. He's talking about the new life that we can experience in Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting. I was reading through the lines of O Holy Night this week, and I thought, this guy completely completely ripped off this song. I mean, he totally plagiarized this. Because I had just been reading earlier in the week the Apostle Paul's words in Titus chapter 3, 3 through 7, and listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Paul says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. reflections of God's revealed truth of what he's done for us in sending his son, the Messiah, into this world as our savior, as our deliverer, the one who justifies us, who makes us right in the eyes of our holy God, the one who washes us and cleanses us and renews us by the power of the Holy Spirit, the one who gives us the right to become heirs, children of God, adopted into God's family. Friends, this is all what the new life we experience in Christ is about. This is what it means for the soul to feel its worth, to understand that God loved us so much that he sent Jesus so that we could know him and be reconciled to him when Jesus would go to the cross and shed his blood as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Friends, have you been born again? Have you experienced new life in Jesus Christ? Have you felt your soul's worth? This is what Christmas is all about. It's about God providing a savior for the world. And if you haven't put your trust in Jesus Christ yet, you can know all these promises for yourself in him. If you'll simply open up your heart to him and ask him to come in and forgive you of your sins and be your savior and your Lord and he'll do a powerful work of transformation, and he'll adopt you into God's family. Secondly, this morning, as our everlasting father, Jesus shows us love. Oh, how incredible the love that we have in Jesus Christ, our perfect father. Back in 1963, Look Magazine did an article and a series of photos about John F. Kennedy and his family in the White House. One of the iconic photos, an instant classic, was, was this incredible photo of JFK Jr., John Jr., under his father's desk, the Resolute Desk in the Oval Office, peering through his, his secret opening he used to play in. And it became an instant classic. It's, it's a historically iconic photo. It's especially powerful when we think about the reality that only a few short weeks after this picture was taken, JFK would be assassinated. But this picture has stood in our nation's consciousness for years. And one of the reasons why it's so powerful is here in this picture, we see the loving intimacy and access that John Jr. had to his father, the one who was literally the most powerful man in the world at the time. And here is his little boy. And you can even just see in his dad's smile, his, his joy and his pride with his son there in his presence. Friends, I want to tell you this morning, we have an even greater intimacy and an even greater relationship with an even more powerful Father, our everlasting Father, Jesus Christ. And I want you to remember, just like we saw last week, Jesus is also our mighty God. He's a risen Savior who rules and reigns today. And because of this, when we have a personal relationship with him, we can be confident that our everlasting Father, Jesus Christ, loves us this very day with an everlasting kind of love. How how does Jesus love us today? You know, we often think about Jesus' love in light of Jesus' sacrifice and going to the cross. But friends, Jesus, as our everlasting Father, loves us even to this very day. He loves you right now. How so look what the Bible tells us about Jesus' love for us. This is all about Jesus's love for us. Today, He intercedes for us. He stands between us and our holy heavenly Father, interceding on behalf of our sins. He's our mediator. He, he strengthens us. Philippians 4:13, "I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He protects us against our spiritual adversary, the devil. He hears our prayers. He satisfies our thirst. Jesus says, are you thirsty? Come and drink from the living waters. He's talking about satisfaction in life there. He's talking about the longings that we all have, the things that we pursue in this world that just don't satisfy. Jesus says, are you thirsty? Are you looking for satisfaction? Come and drink from the waters of life. He offers us that living water. He provides for our needs. He he facilitates spiritual growth in our lives. John 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who remains in me will bear much fruit. He disciplines us. Friends, isn't it true that a loving father will discipline their children at times? Why do we get disciplined by our fathers? Because they're trying to bring us back into correction to walk in a right relationship with him. So Jesus and his love will discipline his his children. But at the same time, Hebrews 4.16 tells us that he gives us mercy and grace in our times of need. He watches over us. He never leaves us. Jesus says in Matthew 28.20, Surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He never forsakes us, Hebrews 13.15 tells us. He leads us to abundant life, John 10.10. He builds our spiritual family, his church. Friends, how important is your church to you this morning? How important are your friends here in this church? It's Jesus who built this church. It's Jesus who did that out of his love for us. He prepares our spiritual homes for us, our eternal homes. John 14, 2, Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you, that where I am you may be also. How awesome is that house going to be, friends? Jesus has been there 2,000 years preparing a place for you. And one day he's coming again to take you with him so that you might be there as well. He gives us his resurrection power so that we need not fear death. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? This is all the love of Jesus. We could go on and on. I could be here for hours talking about what the Bible says about Jesus' love for us as our everlasting Father. What an incredible father we have in Jesus. Friends, I want to encourage you this morning, don't ever doubt God's love for you. And if you do ever doubt it, just look to Jesus and remember his great and precious promises to us. He's our loving, everlasting father. Thirdly, this morning, as our everlasting father, Jesus holds us long. He holds us long. You know, one of the sad realities of living in a fallen world, a reality that touches all of us, is the inevitability of death. One of the hardest deaths that we have to deal with is the death of our father. You know, God designed fathers to play a special role in our lives. As I mentioned earlier, I know not everybody had, a, had an ideal father. Some never even knew their fathers. But, but God, in his perfect plan, he gave us fathers. And fathers are meant to provide for us and to protect us and to, to love us and nurture us and, and to be our coach and our mentor and our, and our champion. Fathers play a powerful role in our lives. And, and so when our fathers pass away, we feel their absence in a particularly painful way. You can almost feel lost without them. I remember the first time I experienced the reality of uh, the death of somebody close to me. It it was my senior year in high school. Up to that point, I hadn't really been touched by death in in any way. My grandparents lived long lives, right? And my senior year of high school, though, my best friend, Bobby, his dad came down with lung cancer. And uh, this was a tough deal because his dad, Bob, had been like a second father to me. They, they grew up ne- across the street from us. We were the first two families that moved into our housing development back in the early 70s in Eden Prairie, and we grew up together, playing together. Bobby was like a brother, and his dad was like another father. He was one of my coaches, and t-ball, and football, and just, just a great guy. My dad actually had the privilege of leading Bob to the Lord later in his life. And when Bob ultimately passed away of lung cancer, it was, a, it was a difficult thing for my friend Bobby and his brothers and his sister. They had lost this guy who was just a, a huge pillar in their family, just a great man. And I remember after the funeral, my friend Bobby and his brother Damien had come over to our house, and they were just broken. You know, two teenage kids without a dad, And I remember my dad sharing just words of love and encouragement with them, reminding them of God's love, sharing with them of Jesus' faithfulness, that he is their everlasting father, and he would continue to be that for them, and he would be that for their dad, even in death. That Jesus is our everlasting father. He reminded them that he would hold them long, He would never let them go. I remembered these words of my father not too many years later when he too unexpectedly passed away at the age of 61. And this too was an incredibly difficult time, but it was my hope in Jesus, my everlasting father, and his promise to hold me fast and never let me go that encouraged my heart in the midst of my own pain In my own grief, I held fast to the promises of Scripture. Promises like Romans 8, 38 through 39. Where Scripture tells us that I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, I want to tell you something here this morning. No matter what you're going through today, no matter the trials and hardships you might be facing, you can be confident that nothing will ever separate you from your everlasting Father's love. He will hold you long, and he will never let you go. What a blessing it is to know that we have an everlasting father in Jesus Christ. (laughs) What a cause for joy this Christmas season. If you're in need of hope this Christmas, friends, let me encourage you, look to Jesus Christ. (laughs) See in his fatherly eyes, his fatherly joy over you. Feel in his fatherly embrace, his fatherly love for you. And here, in his tender, fatherly words, his promise to never leave you or ever forsake you. Know the love of a father, a perfect father in Jesus. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are so amazing. We thank you that we have this reality in you, the reality of an everlasting father who loves us with a perfect love, a love that never ends, a love that blesses us with so many incredible privileges and blessings here and now, and a love that we have to look forward to for all of eternity. We thank you for the many great and precious promises that we have about you, Lord, as our everlasting Father in your perfect love. I pray that these realities encourage our hearts today and inspire us with great joy and and, uh, hearts of worship this week as we look ahead to Christmas, as we're reminded of just the power of what Christmas is all about, that our wonderful Counselor has come, our mighty God has come, our everlasting Father has come, as we're going to see next Saturday on Christmas Eve that our Prince of Peace has come. Jesus, to you belongs all the honor, glory, and praise. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.